Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for this episode is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Let's read that now. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. It has been six days after the great revelation of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus has grabbed a smaller number of his disciple group and headed up a mountain. This moment alone should have been enough to telegraph something to the disciples, as a lot of amazing events in the Old Testament took place in mountain settings. As you read those pages, you'll see a number of new revelations, uh, spiritual experiences and significant victories taking place in this arena. And sure enough, with Jesus leading these men up the hill, this turns out to be one of those sorts of events. As we read, we see there's a lot happening there, so let's work through the elements one at a time. Let's start with the visual change in the appearance of Jesus. This word transfigured only occurs a few times in the Greek New Testament. This instance, as well as Romans chapter 12 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. The Greek word is metamorpho, and if you've ever seen the whole caterpillar to butterfly process, you might know of the word in English rather well. It is, of course, metamorphosis. In Romans and 2 Corinthians, it speaks of the mind and character of a Christian believer becoming more like Christ. That is a powerful image. We are called to an internal metamorphosis process in our discipleship journey. This occurrence speaks specifically of the visual change in Jesus on the mountain that day. The disciples have seen this in faith six days prior. But now the deity and glory of Christ is very much on display. So too is more of the ominous part of his earthly ministry. In Revelation chapter 1, we see a great image of the glorified ascended Christ. I'll read to you verses 12 to 17. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair in his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The three disciples are getting a sneak peek of that glorious appearance. However, six times in Revelation, we also see the ominous presence of white linen. Let me offer chapter 6 verse 11 as an example. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters were killed, just as they had been. Even on this mountaintop moment, the theme of recent episodes is apparent. It is the divine but soon-to-be-suffering Savior on display yet again. He is glorified, yet the front-runner of the ultimate witness. White robes in this passage are the garments of a soon-to-be martyr. In Revelation, it's the same Christ, but in victory, not death. Now, let's talk about the people who are joining him there. Two key figures from the Old Testament appear and begin conversing with Jesus. They are identified as Moses and Elijah by all three gospel accounts, and Luke writes that they were in discussion about what lay immediately ahead for Jesus. It's an interesting mix to have these two guys present. These are clearly heavyweights in the Old Testament. Elijah isn't known for any written work per se, but his influence and forceful way left a major impression on Israel. We can note also that both of these people left their earthly lives in interesting ways, Elijah taken away on a chariot of fire and Moses being buried in an unknown place by the Lord himself. Both were anticipated around the time of the Messiah as well through various interpretations of the Torah. Elijah was pointed to as a forerunner to Christ in Malachi, although Jesus clears that riddle up in a few verses' time. Moses was anticipated in one way or another because of what was written in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where he stated that a prophet like him would come, and that the people should listen to him or be held accountable. Peter and Stephen would later confirm Christ to be this person in their sermons found in Acts chapter 3 and 7. The simplest way to interpret these two men comes when we understand how the scriptures were constructed up to that point. The Old Testament existed in pretty much the form we know it as now even if opinions about which book fits where might differ. That said, it's worth noting that there was nothing old or new about it at that point. It was known among the people as simply the law or the Torah, the prophets, which included 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, where Elijah appears, and the writings, the wisdom literature, such as Psalms and Proverbs and other poetic contributions. Therefore, Moses and Elijah being present for this occasion makes perfect sense. It is the law and the prophets coming together. The image we are being given here is a snapshot of the disciples' entire religious heritage, and they are about to be shown a whole new theological perspective. Let's now talk about the interaction taking place before them. Jesus is clearly presented in his deity here. We understand that Jesus was God in the flesh, or God incarnate. And the Old Testament has passages pointing to God's presence in an incarnational way. The brightness of Jesus' face and person radiating is reminiscent of key Old Testament texts. It starts with a pillar of fire before Israel and continues with a man in the vision of Daniel chapter 10, whose face was like lightning and his eyes like burning torches and a body like topaz and shining bronze and a voice like a multitude. 
when you get a few spare moments, compare that presentation with a glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1. The law and prophets in writing point to an incarnate God. And in this passage, they have physically appeared for the purpose of endorsing Christ as this being fulfilled. Then there is the cloud with the voice of the Father. This was understood through the law of Moses to always signify the overarching divine presence of God over his people. The statement made from the cloud is the crescendo of this event. This is my son. Listen to him. With all that taking place, the Christology of the disciples is doing backflips. In one major event, the law, the prophets, the divine presence, all point to Jesus. Then they all disappear, and all that stands before these disciples is Jesus. At this point, the transfiguration is over, and the message to the disciples is clear. Their entire religious heritage, the entirety of that which had been taught to them by the rabbis, the priests, and the Pharisees, was designed to point them to Jesus. We then read that once all that has taken place, the conversation with Jesus continues. And the conversation puts a huge exclamation point on things explored over recent episodes. Let me paraphrase what Jesus goes on to say to the disciples. Everything points to me. Now, understand this in light of what you've seen today. The suffering that was written of in the law and the prophets, that too must occur as well. And deep down, you know it already. The predicted forerunner, prophetically called Elijah, has come and gone. John the Baptist was that guy. And he was a forerunner in suffering and death too. Just as he was rejected and killed, so must the Messiah he carved the path for. Now, let's reflect by examining the response of the disciples, in particular Peter, as they take all this in. It's believed that Peter actually told this story to Mark, and this is reflected in the way Mark's gospel notes the fatigue and confusion of the disciples. It's almost as if Peter said, What did anyone expect? I was tired and I was freaking out. However, there is a potential glimpse of the unfiltered mindset of the disciples in what is told here. This whole event should have been a significant development in their Christology, with real revelation and a sense of awe at what they were being made privy to. This eventually turned out to be the case, but I don't think it was all sinking in just yet. So Peter hastily talks about making three dwellings on the mountain. It's not for any religious reason. Some suggest that it's because the Feast of Tabernacles was coming up, but there's nothing in context to suggest the accuracy of that. In fact, if this was that festival time, Jesus and the disciples were in the wrong location, and disobediently so. I actually believe it's a human reason once again. This moment up the mountain here is just too good. It's a once-in-a-lifetime significant encounter with God, and it's quite likely the disciples don't want this to end. Remember, just days ago, there was talk of martyrdom and suffering. But this moment for the disciples is anything but that. It is a glorious moment, and no one wants to let it go. What if they could prolong this? What if they could pitch some tents for all three men and create a camp for the night, or longer? Perhaps the suffering wouldn't be necessary after all. What if the people could simply come to the mountain, see this magnificent sight, and come back to order this way instead? Remember, the Pharisees were looking for a big sign a few passages ago. Surely this would be big enough for them to finally believe too, right? However, that wasn't the divine plan, and this experience points so clearly to that. The entire event suddenly disappears, 
and only Christ, the soon-to-be-suffering servant, remains, the one that the entirety of their heritage just instructed them to pay attention to. This idea of paying attention in the original language leads us beyond mere auditory ability. It wasn't just the hearing of words, but the perception and commitment to its deeper message. Following Jesus from that time meant not remaining up the mountaintop where the revelation was, but following him alone down again and getting hands-on with the things Jesus would be putting his hand to. There was some real ministry immediately down the mountain that Jesus would be putting his hand to, and the disciples' hands would be there as well. But soon, Jesus would also put his hands to a wooden beam and nails, knowing that those who follow him might be called on to do the same. But there would also be resurrection. If the timelines are as accurate as scholars think, the day of Pentecost and the birth of the first century church was less than six months from the time this was happening. Staying on a mountaintop meant missing all those things, both good and bad. But most importantly, it meant missing out on the plan of God altogether. If they clung to the moment, there wouldn't be the movement that continues to exist even today. As modern Christians, there are still mountaintops that happen from time to time. And you, the listener, might identify one in your own life at some point. Sometimes it comes as a great spiritual awakening or a revitalization that takes place within. Sometimes it's an encounter with the Holy Spirit at a worship gathering or a retreat. Sometimes it is a mind-blowing revelation that reshapes you or resets your ministry focus. These are all good things, and Jesus clearly allowed these things to occur throughout his earthly ministry. But the call down the mountain was always there because that's where the will of the Father was being carried out and the disciples had an active part in it to play. It's the same today. Mountaintops provide rest. They provide revelation and resolve. They are truly rejuvenating times that equip and empower. But there is always a point where we need to come down again. The moment will end and Jesus will move on from that place. Our proper response is to follow him down and put our hands to whatever he is putting his hand to. If we try to remain up there or try to somehow manufacture the moment, it will be neither restful nor revelatory. So we have a few big questions to ask ourselves as we reflect on all this. First, there is the presentation of Jesus in this passage. Garments of white indicating glory, deity and suffering. The law, the prophets, and the voice and cloud of God, all calling us to pay full attention to him. The entirety of Israel's hope and heritage is unambiguously Jesus in this passage. This is as big of an endorsement that heaven can give him. So I pray this endorsement is big enough for you too. All of heaven wants you to know that Jesus is the one whom all of the earth is called to pay attention to. Have you been ignoring him? Have you been resisting him? Will you drop your guard and will you give him all of your attention as the voice of heaven calls us to do? And second, there is the mountaintop and our proximity to Jesus through the whole experience. It's good to be up there at times. Jesus clearly led three of his disciples up to this place. But once the moment has done what it was intended to do, Jesus will leave that spot and go back to where he needs us to be. Our best response is to follow him back down trusting that Jesus has done something new in us, which will set us up to face whatever is down there. Thanks for tuning in. 
To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.